Hello, and welcome to our podcast here at Discovery Point Church. Thank you for joining us today. We pray this message inspires you and is the beginning of a life-changing relationship with Jesus. It's good to see you here today. We are blessed by your presence. And those of you who are uh, here online, welcome to Discovery Point Church. We are glad that you are here. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege of gathering in this place to sing songs of worship to your son Jesus. To be reminded that he is indeed a friend, a friend who was closer than a brother, and a friend who will never leave our side. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son. And as we come to your word this evening, Lord, we pray that you would encourage us through your word, that you would strengthen our faith through your word, that as we read your word together, we might hear from heaven. Continue to bless our worship and the reading of your word, I pray, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, we, we closed out our study of Romans chapter 5 through Romans chapter 8, the exchanged life, and uh, toward the end of our time last week, Pastor Greg presented us with a question, and the question was this. How would you live differently if you were fully convinced that nothing could separate you from his love? How would you live differently if you were fully convinced that there was absolutely nothing that could separate you from the love of God. How might our lives look? And that was the question that we were left with. We, we then saw a video that really kind of caught us off guard and made us look at ourselves because it, it got us to think about this, that there are some times in our lives when we question God's faithfulness. There are times when Life happens and troubles come along and things don't go like we expect they should and we begin to question whether or not God is truly faithful. But at the end of the video, the conclusion was simply this, that God is always faithful. He is always faithful. But I want to ask you a question. Do we really believe that God is always faithful? If we take off the facade, we take off the mask, and we're honest with ourselves, do we really believe that God is always, 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 always faithful? I mean, if you look at our culture today, our culture is in disarray. It is steeped in continual and willful sin whether you're talking about the government or you're talking about our educational system or you're talking about churches where sin is running rampant and the gospel is, is not to be found. It's as, it's as though sin has license to do what it wants to do in our world. Or it seems to be running unhindered and unchallenged and lawlessness seems to be the, the, the soup du jour. It seems that today that everybody has their own truth. 
You have your truth. You've got your truth. I've got my truth. And whether they contradict or not, it's my truth. And that just sounds kind of crazy to me because if two truths contradict, then one of them isn't true. But this seems to be our culture today. And at times it makes me wonder, has, has God abandoned us? Has he left us to our own devices? Has he, as Roman 1 says, has he given us over to our sin? I mean, think about it. We, we hear people saying, God bless America. When America has told God to, to hit the bricks. We don't want you in our government. We don't want you in our school system. We don't want you in most of our churches. And so how can God bless that sort of apostasy. And when I think about it, our culture today is very much like the culture of ancient Israel, where corruption and lawlessness and sin were running rampant. To set the scene, in the Old Testament, God had made Israel some promises. Matter of fact, will you turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 18? It's in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 18. You'll find Genesis, Exodus, you'll find Leviticus, you'll find Numbers, and then you'll hit Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Moses is speaking to the people, and in verses 13 through 18, we find this. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 13 through 18. The text read this. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For those nations which you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of my Lord, my God. Let me not see the great fire anymore, or I will die. The Lord said to me, and this is Moses talking, They have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among your, their countrymen like you, Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. And so God promised Israel that he would send them a prophet like Moses and God was going to put his words in, into this prophet and this prophet was going to disclose everything that God had said to him. And then sometime later in Joshua chapter 24, if you go to the right with me, Joshua chapter 24, the very next book, Joshua makes a covenant with Israel. And this is a familiar passage, but in Joshua 24, verses 14 through 16, uh, Joshua says this to the children of Israel as they have entered the land. He says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Verse 15, The Lord your God... Whoop, sorry. If it is disagreeable in, the, in, in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, 
whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the, the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. And so a promise is made by God to send a prophet just like Moses. A promise is made by the people that they were only going to serve Yahweh. But then there's a problem. You see, sometime between 1350 B.C. and 1050 B.C., things changed. Joshua has died. The elders have died. There is no leader in Israel. There's no Moses. There's no Joshua. And it seems now that Israel has walked away from their God. They have walked away from Yahweh. They have become sinful and they have become willfully disobedient. God instructed the Israelites to go and destroy the Amorites and the Jebusites and the Hittites and the, and the, and the Amalekites. And yet they did not do what God commanded them to do. They went after other gods. After God said, you shall worship me and me alone. They married foreign women and had their hearts turned towards these other gods. And so Israel committed apostasy. And chaos began to reign in Israel very much like today. They adulterated themselves, and God would punish Israel by raising up a nation to destroy them and defeat them and enslave them. And then God would raise up ones bringing justice. We call them judges. And they would rescue Israel, and they'd bring them back to Yahweh, and they would serve Yahweh again. And then after a little bit of time, Israel would go back to their, their ways of serving foreign gods. And this cycle continued for some 400 years, so much so that if you will go with me to the end of Judges, Judges chapter 21, we find these words written. Judges chapter 21, verse 25. And the writer concludes with this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Sounds a lot like today. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. Everybody has their own truth, doing things their own way, worshiping God in, their, in what they think is right, rather than how God has prescribed for us to worship him. So how can God fulfill his promise to bring someone like Moses when Israel has utterly abandoned God? How can God save his people? who have rejected him and abandoned him and forgotten about him and turned their back on him and have apostatized. Will God be faithful? Well, enter Ruth. And if you're in Judges, just turn one page over and you will find the book of Ruth. We are starting a new study today uh, a new sermon series that is going to take us through the book of Ruth. And it's our prayer that you will be encouraged to know that God is indeed faithful. Now, we don't know who wrote the book of Ruth. Some say it might have been Samuel. Some say it might have been Solomon. The author never identifies themselves. Therefore, we don't know who wrote Ruth. 
We're not quite sure when Ruth was written. Some say it was during the reign of King David. Some say it was during the reign of King Solomon. We really don't know because the author doesn't tell us at what time he, wrote, he or she wrote the book of Ruth. But here's what we do know, is that the book of Ruth was written to demonstrate God's covenant faithfulness. God never, ever breaks his covenant. If you hear nothing else today, take that with you. God never, ever fails to keep his covenants. And we're going to see and learn three things on this journey. Number one, we're going to see that Ruth follows an account of faithfulness wrapped in loyalty and redemption and love. And this is wrapped around another bigger story of loyalty and redemption and faithfulness and love. We're going to see how God loves and is loyal to Israel, even in their sinful state, through the lens of Ruth and the things that she experiences in the land of Israel. We're going to see that Ruth builds a bridge between the lawlessness of judges and God's faithfulness in Samuel. And we're going to see in, in, in Ruth God's sovereignty and God's providence. These are theological terms that we don't often talk a lot about. But I want to just explain this just a little bit. So what is God's sovereignty? Uh, Chuck Swindoll and Dr. Roy Zuck in their book, Understanding Christian Theology, Theology define sovereignty this way. They said sovereignty is God's, it, it is his supreme and absolute authority as ruler over all his creation. His supreme and absolute authority as ruler over all his creation. Dr. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology defines God's sovereignty as God, God's exercise of power over his creation that God exercises his power over his creation. And Willard Erickson in his Christian theology defines sovereignty this way. He says, God is the creator and Lord of all things, and consequently he is free to do whatever he wills. He is not subject or answerable to anyone. I like that. God is in control of everything. Since he created everything, everything belongs to him. Therefore, he can do whatever he chooses to do with his creation. And then there's God's providence. And Dr. Wayne Grudem defines God's providence as this. He says, God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he keeps them, number one, he keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. God holds all things together. He says he cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. He keeps the laws of nature as they should be. And thirdly, he says God directs them to fulfill his purposes. He directs them to fulfill his purposes. Millard Erickson, in his Christian theology, defines providence this way. He says, the continuing action of God by which he preserves in existence the creation he has brought into being and guides it to his intended purposes for it. 
I love that. God's providence is this, this scarlet thread through our lives that God uses events and circumstances to bring about his will. And God will use, as we have saw in, in Romans chapter 8, all things work together for the good. God uses every situation, good and bad, to bring about his will. And he is in control. And in Ruth, we're going to see God's sovereignty and his providence as he engages a sinful and apostate people and demonstrates his love for them. So go with me to Ruth chapter 1, where we're first going to see the famine. That's in chapter 1, verse 1a. Where well, the text says this, Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. Let me stop there. We, we learn that it came about in the days of the judges. This is the time that 1350 to about 1050 B.C. when Israel is lawless. There's no king. There's no prophet. And Israel is doing whatever they feel like they want to do. If it feels good, do it. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And there was great apostasy during this time that these events take place. We also learned that there is a famine in the land. And if you know anything about a famine, you know that there's a lack of food and potentially water. And where there's a lack of food and there's a lack of water, there's disease and there's death. There's mourning, and there's suffering. And the writer tells us that there was a famine in the land. If you remember just about a year ago, there was a famine here in this land because nobody could find any bathroom tissue. And we were all scrambling to Walmart and Walgreens and Costco and Sam's looking for this bathroom tissue, and we couldn't find it. And some of us were panicking because we didn't have enough. We have two teenage boys at home, and they run through it like it's water. And so we were at one point, we need, to, we need to move, we need to do something. But there is a famine in the land. And times are not good in this very unlawful and sinful and apostate setting. And then we see the family in verses 1b through verses 2. Look at the text with me. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. Let me stop there for a minute. Now let me keep reading. Verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Let's look at this. This is very interesting. If you bring up that first map, we learn that, that the certain man was from Bethlehem of Judah. And the writer wants us to understand that he is from the region of Judea because in Israel there were two cities named Bethlehem. You had one to the north, just south of Galilee, or just northwest of Galilee, or Nazareth rather. And then you had one just southeast of Jerusalem, in Judah. And the writer wants us to know that this family, this man, 
came from Bethlehem that is in Judah, the same place that David came from. Matter of fact, he calls them Ephrathites. And when the prophecy about Jesus' birth is given in Ezra, it talks about Bethlehem Ephrathah, this very same city. And so this man takes his family because of this famine, and they go on a journey to a city called Moab, to a country called Moab. By the way, did you know that Moab had its beginnings in an incestuous event? If you'll go with me to Genesis chapter 19, I want you to see something. First book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 19. I'm going to begin reading in verse 29. Genesis chapter 19, and we'll start in verse 29. I find this so fascinating. Genesis 19, 29. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley, that is Sodom and Gomorrah, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Verse 30, And Lot went up to Zor and stayed in the mountains and his two daughters with him, for he was afraid to stay in Zor, and he stayed in a cave, he and his two daughters. Verse 31, Then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old. And there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine and let us lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. Verse 33. So they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went went in and lay with her father and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose and it came about On the morning that the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. Verse 35. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both daughters, both the daughters of Lot, were with child by their father. The firstborn bore son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the sons of Ammons, the Amalekites, to this day. Isn't it interesting that God would use an incestuous relationship to bring about a people that is going to benefit the world in the future. I think we can glean from this that all lives matter. That all babies are precious in God's sight. No matter how they might be conceived, no matter how that might rub us the wrong way, in God's economy, every life has a purpose. And who would have thought that through this incestuous event, God would use these daughters to bring about a nation named Moab that would save a man and his family years later? All right, back to Ruth, back to the text. Ruth chapter 1. We also learn...
that Israel and Moab, although they were relatives, they were cousins, they didn't like each other very much. As a matter of fact, in Judges chapter 3, we learn that Eglon, who was the king of Moab, got together with the king of the Amorites and the Amalekites, and they conquered Israel, and they oppressed them for 18 years. So there's no love lost between the inhabitants of Moab and the inhabitants of Israel. Now, bring up the next map, please. So Moab is some 60 miles tall and about 25 miles wide. It has fertile western valleys that border the, the Dead Sea. And it was excellent for, for viticulture. It was excellent for agriculture. It was excellent for grazing your, your flocks and your herds. And raising sheep was the major occupation at this time. And it was well watered in the west by rainfall in the rainy season and was dry and arid and desert-like on the eastern border in the summers in the dry season. And isn't it interesting that this man, Elimelech, would take his family from Bethlehem and make his way around to Moab where there's food and resources during a famine. Now, also we learn about this family is that in, in Hebrew culture, names have meaning. And names often describe the characters of those who hold those names. For example, Elimelech, his name means God is king. There I say even sovereign. God is king. Naomi, her name means pleasantness or, or delight. Malon Although his name is a proper name, the noun form means sickness or disease. Perhaps when he was born, he wasn't born very healthy. And, and Chilion, his name, also a proper name, the noun form means destruction or failing. It's though these boys were born somewhat sickly. But this is the family who leaves Bethlehem in Judea and travel to Moab to find food and shelter and relief from the famine that is in Israel. And then we have the funerals in verses 3 through 5. Look at the text. With verse 3, Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of, the, of one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. Let me stop here for a minute, because I think this is important. Naomi's husband, he dies. He is her support system. He is the one that she depends on for everything that she has and needs. And when he dies, suddenly there's this hole in her life because her husband is no longer with her. And she grieves because her spouse is gone. And I'm sure in her mind she has to wonder how am I going to survive? How am I going to make it? Because my husband is gone. But here's something that we learn, is that her sons take Moabite women as their wives. Orpah and Ruth. And so now she has to depend on her sons to provide for her food, shelter, and whatever else she might need 
By the way, orpa means, uh, means mane or lock of hair. Perhaps she had a lot of hair when she was born. But Ruth means friendship. Let that sit with you for a little bit as we move along through, through this letter. By the way, in the Old Testament, there is no prohibition against Israelites marrying Moabites. Now, they can't marry Ammonites and, and Jebusites and Amalekites, but there is no prohibition against them marrying Moabites. And so they, they get together and they, 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 they marry and they support their mom. But then something happens. Both of the boys die. And now Naomi is left alone at death's door because she no longer has a means of support. And so how is she going to make it? And what do you think is going through her mind? God, why have you done this to me? And now she's grieving because of her, boy, her two boys are now gone. Now I've got to tell you, if, if I were to pass, my wife would be in, in the Bahamas grieving somewhere for about a couple of weeks. But Naomi is grieving and she is sad and she may even be angry at God because he has taken not only her husband but her two sons and now she has absolutely no means of support, which means she may die. But you know, God's providence and God's sovereignty and God's timing is perfect. Because look at the text in verses 6 and 7. Look at this feast. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return to the land, that she might return from, excuse me, the land of Moab. For she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. In other words, the famine is over. Interesting, it happens right after her sons die, after her husband has passed. After 10 years, she gets word that there's food in the land of Israel again. The famine is gone. I can go back to my home where I can have a relative take care of me. In verse 7, so she departed from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law with her, and they were on the way to return to the land of Judah. It's time to go home. Word has come. There is food. There was water. The, the, the fields are ripe with the harvest. The trees have, are producing fruit. The vines have grapes. I can go back to my family. And then we see the farewells in verses 8 through 13 where the text says, And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to, your, to her mother's house. Why the mother's house and not the father's house? Because it's probably easier for them to go back to their mother than to stay with their mother-in-law. There's family at mom's house because their mother-in-law is about to go back to Israel. And she says this, May the Lord deal kindly. This word kindly is hesed in Hebrew. This is, it speaks of God's covenant faithfulness. May the Lord be faithful to you as you have dealt with me, with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. Then she kisses them, and they, lift up, they lifted up their voices and wept. 
Verse 10, And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. They want to continue on with Naomi, but Naomi's she's older and she's a little more wiser and she realizes, I don't have any more sons. Look at the text. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and even and also bear a son, would you therefore wait until they were grown? That's a very good question. Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. Hear the heart of Naomi. Go back to your mother's house. I'm too old to get married again. I'm too old to have children. You're much younger, and it's easier for you to have children than me. By the way, are you going to wait for me to possibly marry and birth boys and then wait for them to grow up so you can marry them? The answer is no, you won't do that. Go home. And she says, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. God has taken my husband, he has taken my sons, and I have no means of support, and I can't support you. Go. You ever feel like that? Like the hand of God is against you? Like life circumstances seem to continue to invade your life and it's one issue after another after another after another and you wonder God why are you why are you doing this to me you ever been like that that's how Naomi feels that God has taken away all of her support here in the land of Moab that his hand has gone against me that is not a good thing but I want to pull three principles out of this text that I hope will encourage us this evening. Number one, God uses circumstances to bring about His will. God used a famine to get Elimelech out of Judah and into Moab. God uses, uses the richness of Moab, their, their land and the food and the animals to get Elimelech there and after he has died, the sons have to marry, and they just happen to marry Moabite women. And God has a purpose in this. And when we get to the end of Ruth, you'll see that purpose, unless you read ahead. Second, God's will is not always evident to us, but His will is always good for us. Let me flesh this out for us. When I graduated college in Little Rock, I moved to the big city of Dallas. Land of big, big belt buckles and big lights and big buildings, and I was excited coming from small town Arkansas. And when I got to Texas, I realized I don't like Texas very much. I hate the attitude. I hate the Southern mentality. I hate the don't mess with Texas slogan. slogan. There wasn't much I liked about Texas. Don't tell them that. Huh? So don't tell them that. Well, well, this was then. As my wife says, two of the best things outside of Christ 
came into my life came from Texas, both her and my youngest son. But I, I hated my time, and I spent five years living a very dreary life. Then I met my wife, and we got married, and next thing you know, we were here in Phoenix. And I loved the culture, I loved the mountains, I loved the food, I loved the people. There wasn't much about Arizona I did not like. I loved it, it was great. It was, a, it was a, a 180 from living in Texas. And I'll never forget, I was working for a company and we were going through layoffs and one of my colleagues, whom they had begged to stay, decided he was going to leave. And so he left, which means I took his responsibility. And so for some 24 months, I would ask my manager to send me out for training so I could better manage the tool that I was working on, that, that I had inherited from my colleagues. And every, each time I asked, the answer was always the same. We don't have any money this quarter. Find something close. There isn't anything close. It's either Dallas or, or San Francisco. Well, just wait and we'll see what happens. And about every quarter, I would ask the same question. Can I go in and get the administrative training? No, we don't have any money. Find something closer. There is nothing close. And so I sucked it up and for almost two years, I managed this tool. One day, out of the blue, my colleague that left, he shows up. He's like, well, what are you doing here? Well, they hired me back. I'm doing what I used to do. And it was true because he locked me out of the system. And okay, I'm okay with that, I said. But about a week later, I noticed I didn't see him. And I asked the colleague, where's, where's Craig? Oh, he's gone for two weeks to, to training for the tool that you were working on. And I became incensed and very angry. I was outraged that this man who left for two years comes back and gets the very training I've been asking for for two years. I was beside myself. So much so that it clouded my thinking. And I was venting to a colleague one day, and, and a colleague from Dallas called and said, hey, Rob, we've got a position open, and we can't find anybody to fill it, and I thought about you. Would you be interested in a phone interview? And before he could say view, I said yes. And before you know it, I had a phone interview and an in-person interview, and I found myself on a Sunday night driving to temporary housing. And the fog had cleared, the anger had cleared. And I realized, wait a minute, I'm back in Texas. I hate it here. <laughs> but I can't go back because I quit my job and I start a new job tomorrow. I don't want to be here, Lord. Get me out of here. And this was my, my attitude. Now, here's the thing. This was God's will for Rod. Because in the 22 months that we were in Dallas, my grandmother passed away. Then my mother passed away. Then my oldest brother passed away. Then I had a cousin that passed away. Then Deborah's grandfather passed away. And so we had six deaths in 22 months. And the drive from Little Rock to Dallas is four and a half hours. From Dallas to Houston, it's four. 
there's no way that we could have ever gone back and forth from here. And as much as I was in turmoil and anguish, this was God's will. I didn't know it then. But looking back, I can see God's hand in moving us there to encourage our families, to be close. And so sometimes God's will isn't always evident to us. But it's always good for us. Does that make sense? And then lastly, providentially, God is always working to bring about his will. He will use the events in our lives, good and bad, to bring about his will. And we're going to see in Ruth that he's going to use circumstances and situations to bring about his will, not only for the nation of Israel, but for us today. Amen. 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 I want to leave you with this. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2 in the New Testament. 2 Timothy chapter 2. And by the way, I love Texas today. Don't get me wrong. Don't send me hate mail. It's a great place. If I move anywhere else, it could be Texas. But 2 Timothy chapter 2, I'm going to leave you with something. That Paul tells Timothy, his protege, his son in the faith, as he is preparing to lose his life for Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 2, look at verse 8 with me. Paul tells Timothy this. Here's what's important, Timothy. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who were chosen, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal life. Verse 11 is a trustworthy statement. For if we have died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Brothers and sisters, whether we are faithful or faithless, our God is always faithful. Amen? Father, thank you for uh, your word this evening, and thank you for uh, this letter that we find in Ruth. Lord, we know that you work all things together for the good of those who, who love you, to those who are the call for, for your purpose to make us more like Jesus, but also to fulfill your will through and in us. And Lord, as we examine our own lives this evening, if we find ourselves in situations that make us uncomfortable, help us to be faithful, knowing that you are working out your will in us. And may we approach each and every event in our lives with joy, knowing that you are working. We love you. Use us today for your glory. 
And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us on our podcast today. We pray you allow this message to transform you to take what you learned and share the love of Jesus to those around you. You can stay informed and connected by following Discovery Point Church on all social media platforms. Thank you and God bless you.